0: Good. I say good evening, everyone, but it's good afternoon, everyone. <laughs> thanks a million for coming. Um, this is our, our, what are we calling it, finale. Finale. <laughs> finale of the, the three talks from Gerald Ger Brown on Thursday, Darlene last night, which I know some of you were here for, and Darren today talking about The Last Forester. So thanks a million for coming. Um, Darren has kind of, he which most people do, they come to our attention and then we nab them. So Darren had come to us with uh, a story about, was this the first one or yes. was it the crow's feet? This was the first one. He had researched the lost forester um, and then we nabbed him. And yeah, he has, this is his second talk. He did one on Zoom for us going back in the early stages of, of Zoom, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. um, on this subject. And, and since then, he's found a little bit more information. So. He's a teacher of history and German in Bartheskane Community College. Um, So obviously loves doing research in his spare time if he gets any with two small boys, two three three? kids. Three, three, Three. yeah. So as I said, he's gonna talk about the Lost Forester and afterwards if people like, we can go out and see his grave, which is outside in the graveyard here. Okay, thank you very much.
1: Okay, thanks Arlene and uh, thanks to both um, Arlene and Deborah for inviting me to speak here today. We, Some of you may have seen or heard the story about John Charlesworth before, as, as um, Arlene said, we had a, a Zoom version of it there during COVID, uh, maybe a year or so ago. Um, but it's uh, a very interesting story, a sad story um, of um, a young man, boy, as we'll find out later on, who came to Killaloo and uh, ended up being buried in the graveyard outside. So, um, the reason I suppose I first started researching John was because of um, the gravestone, which we'll see later on outside. It's uh, an unusual gravestone in a few ways. Um, first of all, the physical appearance of it, I suppose, is something that's quite unusual compared to the other graves in the, in the cemetery. It's not your typical slab grave and it doesn't have one of those Celtic cross type um, stones on it. So it's unusual from a physical point of view. You've also got this nice marble um, face on it here as well. And the other reason that I found it unusual was because it mentions the um, the cause of death, which is not something you see that often on a gravestone. So that got me interested. Uh, and of course, when I spotted the Sherwood Foresters thing and the date, which was May 1916, uh, it got me thinking that there could be some connection here to the Easter Rising. And I think when I first spotted it, it was around the time of the centenary of the Easter Rising or, or thereabouts. So, um, that kind of sparked my interest in it, and I had to flick through some of the local history books, Sean Kearse's books and stuff like that, and I didn't see uh, any mention of him really, so I thought it might be worth looking into, and um, that's what I did, so um, there's a good bit of research that I found on John, on his short life, and um, as I said, it, it, it's a sad enough story, but quite interesting, and um, a lot of this information now, it's great nowadays. You can, I like, I, most of this research, the vast majority was done seeing at home on the laptop. There's so much information available online, and um, you know, it's amazing to be able to put all this story together from online sources uh, over a 100 years later. So that's the grave, and as you can see, uh, he dies on 16th of May 1916, accidentally drowned in the Shannon, uh, while the battalion, that's the Sherwood Foresters, uh, the two 8 Sherwood Foresters were stationed uh, at Killaloo. So going back into John's early life then I found that he is uh, or was from a small market town called Mansfield there in Nottinghamshire uh, located between um, the cities of, of Sheffield and Nottingham and he was uh, born in around uh, Church Lane here in the centre of the town of Mansfield. Okay? Uh, later on then the family moved outside the town up here to Broomhill Lane but in his early years, and uh, the first record we have of that is this, the 1901 census, he's living there in, uh, in a house in Church Lane, with his father, Ernest, who is a labourer, uh, his mother, Ellen, or Ellen Alice, as she sometimes shows up on the records, uh, there's John himself, uh, at two years old, and they have a baby daughter um, called Dora, who is one month old at that stage, okay. So the family is um, quite small then, but over the next ten years, as you will see, uh, Ernest and Ellen have been quite busy. They've added some more uh, members to the family. We have another, uh, two more sons, Ernest and Albert, and we have two little girls, uh, Florrie and Hilda. So John, at this stage, is 12 years of age. As you can see, he's in school. Uh, his father, Ernest, is a laborer still, and also a carter, you can see in brackets afterwards. So a carter was somebody who would have driven a, horse, a horse-drawn cart for deliveries or whatever, yeah. Um, so that's 1911. Now, sometime then between 1911 and 1914, John um, goes to work in Langwith um, Colliery coal mine. Uh, this is about 10k, six miles or so outside the, the town where they live, of Mansfield. And at the time, we've got about a thousand men and boys working in those mines. Uh, we also have evidence of um, deaths of boys as young as 15 uh, in Langwith Colliery. Uh, Langwith Colliery. So uh, it's quite a difficult place to work and this was probably the lot of most of the boys in those type of areas. Um, You either went farming or you went to the factories or you went to the mines, okay? Uh, Very few of them would have stayed on an education past 12 or 13 years of age. Uh, So this was John's life. Uh, We have a picture of Langwith Colliery from around the time there. And as you can see, it looks quite grim, yeah? It's not a place that a young boy uh, I don't think would really want to be heading into every day, day after day, knowing that that's going to be your life for many, many years to come. Um, that is a black and white photograph, obviously, but I think if you had a colorized version of that, I don't think it would look a whole lot different to the black and white version because it's just grey and black and soot and coal dust uh, and everything else with it. So it must have been quite hard. Um, I don't know if, if people accepted their lives as they were like that, maybe they did, but You have to imagine for a young boy um, that it was quite difficult going into a place like that uh, on a daily basis um, given the type of hard physical work that they had to do Um, so 1914 comes along then of course and uh, everything changes and I'm just gonna zoom in here because I want to show you this form which is um, John Charlesworth attestation form so he enlists to join the army in um, October of 1914 so the war breaks out in august of 1914 the government and the army are desperate for uh, as many um, troops as they can and uh, people at first sign up in droves yeah and there's a huge drive to get people to join the army uh, and people sign up for various reasons there's uh, patriotism obviously is one reason um, people also want to go uh, to war for the adventure of war maybe especially maybe young men like this um, there was uh, societal pressure to sign up and join, peer pressure as well um, from your um, maybe work colleagues or neighbours or whatever. Um, So huge numbers joined the war and um, this is John's um, signing up in um, October of 1915. So you can see his name there, John Charlesworth. Uh, A couple of little interesting side notes there, C of E, he's Religion Church of England. He's a single man uh he is from the parish of st john's in mansfield in the county of nottinghamshire um, he is a british subject and his age is given as 18 years and six months okay so he's a minor in langwith colliery um, and he's living in Broomhill lane okay so the most interesting thing here i think first of all is the age he gives his age as 18 years and six months but if you were paying attention and you were doing maths Uh, and saw the census there you will have figured out that there was no uh, chance that he was anywhere near 18 years so from the census records um, he was two in 1901 he was 12 in 1911 so that would make him somewhere between 15 and 16 okay when he signed up so uh, when i first wrote the article about this i didn't know his exact age i just said that he was somewhere between 15 and 16 but it was kind of bugging me i wanted to prove what age he was so I went looking for his birth certificate and couldn't find it. I searched and searched for John Charlesworth and there was no sign of any John Charlesworth. Uh, none that matched the one I was looking for, at least. So um, I then found his, uh, his parents' marriage certificate and discovered that they had married in 1900, which was after John was born. So it turned out that John was born out of wedlock. So what I did is I, I searched under his mother's name instead, uh, and that's when I found his actual birth certificate. Um, Suspense Uh, Sorry, and there is his birth cert. Okay, Um, you can see that there is no name given for the father His mother's name is there Ellen Alice Ray Eyre was her maiden name. She was a cotton factory worker in Mansfield Uh, Nothing given for the father in terms of rank or profession Uh, And we have John uh, the boy's first name there. So that is his actual birth cert And he has a very unusual date of birth as well, if you can see that, it's the 25th of December, 1898. So he's born on Christmas day, 1898, okay? So um, if you add up the dates, you will find that he was 15 years and 10 months uh, on the day that he attested into the army. So very, very young. And um, I'm gonna talk a little bit about um, young soldiers and, and boys and why they might have signed up. Uh, and what happened to some of them in a second, okay? So he's, uh, I think if you look at the photograph, actually, you can, you can see how young he is. I mean, he's only a child, really. Um, how anybody let somebody like this into the army is uh, is crazy, but uh, he does sign up and he joins the Sherwood Foresters. You can see the badge on his, on his uh, cap there. That is the, a kind of a close-up version of it. Um, so they were, uh, Sherwood Foresters was kind of a nickname for the Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire Uh, regiment. Uh, So I just want to talk about the boy soldier thing for a little bit because it's interesting obviously and it's relevant to John's story uh, but it's also something I think that's overlooked a bit when people are talking about the Second World War. There were about 250,000 underage boys that signed up to fight in the First World War which is is insane when we think about it. Um, Many of them would obviously have volunteered but uh, the recruitment officers many of them didn't turn a blind eye really or, or did turn a blind eye to age uh, they didn't ask any questions if someone looked fit and strong and they met the the height requirements um, then there were very few questions asked the recruitment officers of course as well were um, being paid per man that they could sign up so that was all the motivation for those um, for those guys as well so if two guys here um, who are underage soldiers the guy on the left is called Sydney George Lewis and he was um, with the East Surrey Regiment. He signs up in one thousand, nine hundred and fifteen at the age of twelve. So he was twelve years old. Now he does look older than his age, to be fair. Uh, but again, nobody asked any questions. Uh, he's sent off to war, and he is um, involved in the Battle of the Somme in one thousand, nine hundred and sixteen. In July one thousand, nine hundred and sixteen, as a machine gunner. So he's part of the machine gun corps. So he's there in what is probably one of the worst slaughters of the, of the First World War um, in the Battle of the Somme at the age of 13, yeah. so really crazy stuff. Uh, his mother later gets hold of his birth cert and she sends it to the War Department and says, look, this guy is underage. Um, so you had, to be, you had to be 18 to actually sign up uh, or to attest, and you had to be 19 to fight, so he was um, far, far younger than he should have been. But his mother got to, gets hold of his birth cert, sends it to the War Department Uh, and gets him uh, sent home basically from the front and he lives to tell the tale, he lives uh, to a good age and dies in around 1969 I think. Uh, Less fortunate then is the boy here on the right, his name is Horace Isles. Uh, Again Horace was underage, he was 14 at the time uh, in 1915 and he was walking around the streets of of Leeds, I think he was on a tram and a woman handed him a white feather and a white feather was a symbol of, of cowardice basically. So that's what I mentioned earlier on about societal pressure. There was a lot of pressure uh, from society um, for men to, to, be, to go to war. If you were seen walking around town uh, and you looked like you should have been fighting, people were asking questions, why aren't you at the front with everybody else? Uh, and a white feather was often given to these men um, to, to symbolize cowardice. So Horace, when he got this feather, was ashamed, basically, and uh, went to the nearest recruitment office straight away and signed up at the age of, um, at the age of 14. So he is also sent uh, to the front and ends up in the Battle of the Somme and uh, his parents are horrified, his family are horrified and uh, they continuously pleading with him to come back from the front and to try and get himself out of the war. Um, We have a letter from his uh, sister. So that is um, Flory, his sister, writing to him basically uh, pleading with him to try and get himself out of the army and come home. Uh, the tragedy of this was by the time she had written that letter he was already dead. Uh, he had died on the first day of the Battle of the Somme uh, at the age of 16. You can see it on his headstone there and he's buried in um, in that grave in France. So um, the letter is returned with KIA killed in action written on the front of it and that's how uh, how they still have the letter. So. Um, that's a really tragic story, I think. And again, it shows the indifference of the government and the army in terms of signing up these young boys and sending them off to war. Um, you know, not keeping an eye out for them, not looking um, to see what age they were and stuff like that. And looking back now, I think, you know, we see that it's, you know, that it, that's shocking thing that should never have happened. But at the time, uh, there was a lot of outrage about it as well. Um, many families uh, were getting in contact with the government continually to try and get boys sent home. And an MP by the name of Markham, uh, who was actually from Mansfield as it happened, he he started a campaign to try and get the government uh, to get these boys home. So he he was continuously bringing up questions in the the House of Commons and continuously being ignored by the government, Um, but he eventually got a campaign going where um, he got people to send in their stories and send in their letters, parents, uh, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters about their young boys that were at war Uh, and eventually the government relented and that's what uh, Flory was referring to in the letter there. She said that they were now bringing boys from under 19 back home again. Uh, The problem with that of course was that many of the boys didn't want to go home. Uh, They were already, some of them were battle-hardened, they had seen action and they they felt that they belonged there. They didn't want to leave their, their friends in the lurch and come home. So that was one problem. Uh, The second problem was uh, the government were a bit uh, underhanded in how they went about it. They brought many of them home, but what they did was they kept them in holding camps until they reached the age of 18 or 19, and then they sent them back out to the front again. So um, that is uh, just a little side note, I suppose, on the whole age issue, because it it does refer to John as well, who, who, as we've already seen, uh, was only 15 years and uh, 10 months, a long way off the 18 uh, years and six months that he claimed to be. But he is five foot four inches, which is sounds pretty small to us nowadays. But back then it was reasonably tall. Um, back then, um, people, especially working class boys, would have been a lot shorter than they are nowadays, and that is to do with poverty and uh, poor nutrition over over many generations. You can actually see it in some of the photographs. Even if you see old army photographs, the officer classes who would have come from the uh, the upper classes are actually visibly taller than the working class boys by by a couple of inches. Uh, And again, it's to do with um, poverty and and poor nutrition, uh, as I said, so he's five foot four, uh, but that meets the height height requirement. He's tall enough to be admitted. His chest size is 33 and a half inches. So that's also good. Vision is good. Uh, His physical development is good for his age, which I thought was quite interesting. Maybe a clue there to the fact that the medical officer uh, realized that this guy wasn't of full age. Um, but either way, he's passed fit and he signed off on the 28th of, of uh, October 1914. And uh, as you said, he goes and joins the Sherwood foresters. Okay? So that's John in the army. And uh, I always you know, uh, try to imagine what the conversation was like when he arrived home that evening. Uh, did his parents know that he was going to sign up? Was this something he did with some friends of his or off his own bat? Or, or um, you know, what was the reaction when he got home? So again, we will never know how the family reacted, but it is interesting, I suppose, to speculate. Um, so he heads off then to um, basic training camp, basically, which is up here in Newark. Uh, that's in late 1914, and throughout 14 and 15, then, they move around the country. So uh, beginning here in Newark, uh, then down to Luton, Dunstable, and eventually end up in Watford. And he's a member of the 2-8, or the 2nd 8 battalion of the Sherwood Foresters. Now the 2nd Battalions were back up to the 1st Battalion, so the 1st Sherwood Foresters would already have been out in France or Belgium fighting. Uh, the job of the 2nd Battalion was to basically fill any gaps that uh, that came about as a result of injury or death. Uh, and every so often a draft of soldiers um, from the 2nd Battalions would be sent out to the front and they would keep replenishing that way. Yeah? Um, so that's what they were doing around this time, uh, training for the type of warfare that they would be encountering when they got there trench warfare in other words, digging trenches, that kind of thing. Their secondary uh, job, I suppose, was to hold themselves as as a defense force in case the country was invaded by the Germans. Now, that obviously never happened, uh, but that was also part of their brief, yeah. So uh, he's in Watford then in the summer of 1915. And as I said already, there's drafts of guys that keep getting sent out to the front to plug the holes in the front lines. And um, around the summer of 1915, um, a draft of 80 men gets sent out from the 2nd Battalion uh, of the 8 for- Foresters, but John is not part of it and I always wondered why he wasn't sent during that um, that draft that was going out. Possibly it was because of his age, maybe people knew that he was underage and didn't want to send him to battle, maybe he wasn't up to the job as a soldier. Um, so again I dug into it a little bit more and I found that during that period when this guy, these guys were drafted out, John was actually in hospital he was in the Eastern General Hospital with a hernia uh, between um, the 10th of July 15 and uh, the 6th of August 1915, so nearly a month he spent there in hospital. And it was actually during that period that that draft of 80 men were sent out. So that's possibly, uh, again, I don't know for sure, uh, but that's possibly one of the reasons why he missed out on that draft. Um, So he spends 27 days in this hospital, which was kind of a makeshift hospital on the grounds of Cambridge University. Um, you can see the cricket fields here Um, this would have been uh, set up to cater for about 1700 men uh, coming back from the front that were injured um, wounded and again I'm only speculating but it's it's interesting to ask the question uh, what would have John seen uh, and heard at these hospitals so you would have had fairly damaged guys coming back here physically and emotionally um, shell shock uh, would have been a huge thing for many of them, um, so he would have probably seen a lot and heard a lot of stories from the front there and um, you know, it's interesting to, to think about how he might have reacted, what he would have seen, would it have scared him or would it have you know, made him even more determined to go or whatever. Um, you're also starting to get around this time, we're now nearly a year into the war and the British public are also starting to realise that this is not going to be the short war that they thought it was Many of them um, expected to be home by Christmas. That's a famous um, thing about First World War. We'll all be home by Christmas and all will be well. It's starting to drag on into uh, a year now and the British public are starting to realize that this is not going to be a short war and it's going to be a long, horrific war. So um, all that is going on around that time. Um, And as I said, John is probably seeing and hearing a lot of stories um, of what's happening at the front. Uh, He's discharged from the hospital then after his 27 days and he returns, uh, he's discharged to furlough, so he goes on leave basically and I assume that he goes back to his family in Mansfield to recover and recuperate or whatever uh, and then rejoins his battalion then in late um, 1915. So that brings us then to 1916, uh, the fateful year of 1916. And at this stage, uh, early 1916, uh, the 2nd 8th Battalion are starting to up their training, so uh, their officers are starting to get increased training, they're doing uh, longer marches, training is becoming more intense, their officers are are heading over to to France to see what the the story is over there, what the situation is like. uh, to be trained up in the different types of, of, of um, warfare that they're fighting over there and bringing that, all that information back. They're getting increased inspections from the top brass, are coming down to have a look at them and so on. So this is all pointing to the fact that they are eventually going to be sent out to, um, to France or Belgium out to the front lines. Okay? One thing they haven't done though which they must do before they go is learn to fire their rifles, yeah? uh, musketry training. Because they have been training with their rifles on them uh, for the past year and a half but they have never actually fired a shot in anger. And um, that was something that all of these units had to do. There was a place, there were a few of them around, but his nearest one would have been North Mims. And they would have gone up there to do their uh, musketry or rifle training. Uh, because there was such a backlog uh, and a huge amount of soldiers coming into the army at once, there was a, a, um, a backlog of um, training courses, basically. So they were penciled in to do their musketry training on the 1st of May. And the idea was that then, after the 1st of May then, they were going to to head off to France. So that's what they were all expecting. The musketry training though, it never takes place. And I'm sure you've all figured out the reason for that now. Uh, It is because on the, let me just get the exact quote here now. Uh, What did I say? Yes, on the 24th of April, they receive orders to hold, uh, the battalion receives orders to hold itself in readiness to move at once to an unknown destination. Uh, and that destination obviously is Dublin, yeah? So the Easter Rising has broken out, um, Easter Monday, and um, there are very few British soldiers in Dublin around the time. They need reinforcements to come over to try and uh, snuff out this rising as quickly as possible. So the 2nd Eight Battalion uh, and other Sherwood Forester battalions, as you can see there, 2.5, 2-7, and 8, are sent uh, from Watford, they get uh, the train to Liverpool and from Liverpool then they get the ferry across to um Dunleary or Kingstown as it was called then okay. So um, many of them don't know where they're going, uh, they haven't been told by anybody where they're going, we have stories of some guys landing on, um, on the harbour in Kingstown and greeting local women with bonjour mademoiselle thinking that they have landed in France Uh, And we also have uh, a bunch of really raw recruits. Some of them have only been in the service about three months and none of them, as we've seen already, uh, have fired a rifle in anger. So the officers get them down to the seafront there and get them literally to to load their rifles and shoot out into the Irish sea. And that would have been one of the first times that many of them had fired a rifle. So uh, in the meantime, uh, the Easter Rising is um, two days old at this stage, we're talking about the Wednesday of, of Easter week, so Easter Monday obviously is when things kicked off in Dublin. Uh, it's now Wednesday when um, the Sherwood Foresters land here in, um, in Kingstown. Um, down here, um, around south of the river, around uh, the Ballsbridge area uh, and up in Bolands Mills we have of course Eamon de Valera uh, and his men and their job is to stop British reinforcements from coming up through the centre of the town and into Dublin city. So they are uh, holed up in a couple of buildings there, and I'll show you a map in a second uh, to show you exactly where they were. But uh, that was their job. So uh, they're waiting, basically, for the Sherwood Foresters to arrive. So the the Foresters arrive at the beach, as I said, Uh, raw recruits, many of them, young men, um, some of them never fired a rifle. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like a recipe for disaster already, which which it will turn out to be. But originally uh, and initially they are greeted... Um, really warmly by the locals. You have a, a big Unionist uh, Protestant population around South Dublin, and they give tea and sandwiches and everything to all of the, the foresters and give them maps and information about what's happening in the city. So uh, they are um, greeted fairly well and they march up through um, South Dublin, having a grand old time, thinking everything is going to be great and they're going to, um, you know take out these, these bunch of rebels pretty easily, but that's obviously not what happens. Uh, we have rebels holed up here in a couple of buildings. Okay, so this is uh, Northumberland Road. This is the road that the foresters are going to march up. Uh, we have two rebels in this building here, um, 25, 25 um, Northumberland Road, uh, another four here in St. Stephen's Prochiel Hall and seven rebels here in Clon William House. So um, you can see that the the formation that they're in, uh, it's a long formation and you're talking about um, two battalions. So if we go back to the original map, um, they were broken up here, the uh, 2.5th and 2.6th battalion head westwards to approach Dublin in here through Kilmainham and the 2.7th and 8th are sent up uh, through the centre of um, South Dublin. Uh, So it's a long column, we've got about 1,500 men and it takes a long time for them to pass because of the way they're in a formation like that. And uh, also, you're talking about narrow streets there, so there's no room for them to spread out. So it's a long column uh, marching up through here, and they're they're basically sitting ducks for these uh, rebels that are holed up in the buildings here. So uh, around midday or thereabouts on on the Wednesday, they start to approach up through uh, Northumberland Road here. And that is when the two rebels in this building, uh, Seamus Grace and Michael Malone, begin firing on uh, the British soldiers who, as we said already, were um, not very well trained, uh, very raw and uh, poorly led, I suppose you could say as well. The officers in charge uh, were not, you know, they were not trained for this type of urban warfare. They were trained to fight in the trenches and they really only know one way of attacking and that's full frontal attack. So uh, wave upon wave of um, uh, British soldiers are trying to uh, capture this building and the two men in the building, uh, Seamus Grace and Mike Malone, are just having a field day shooting down uh, and it quickly turns into a scene of carnage. Um, eventually, and it takes a good few hours, we're talking maybe four or five hours before they over, um, overrun these two rebels here, uh, Michael Malone is killed in the building, uh, Seamus Grace manages to escape out the back, um, he lives to tell the tale he um, I'll come back to him in a minute, but Seamus, I'll, I'll tell you about Seamus Grace in a second. Uh, he hides out in a shed um, uh, and managed to escape, but uh, Michael Malone, as we said, is shot. One of the first guys uh, that falls on the British side is this guy called F- um, Friedrich Dietrichsen. It sounds like a very German name, but he is a British officer. And this is another particularly sad story because he uh, was married to an Irish woman from Dublin. Uh, He sends his wife and child home from England because he's worried about German bombing raids and Zeppelin raids and stuff like that, and he thinks that they will be safer back in Dublin. So he sends them to um, his mother-in-law in in Dublin, and the morning as they're walking up through South Dublin, uh, his wife and daughter come out onto the street to meet him, and he breaks ranks and he goes and gives them a hug and a chat, uh, and so on. And a couple of hours later, just up the road, he is shot dead. So that's uh, another little side note and a very... Um, sad um, part of that story. So like all of these things have little individual stories which are which are really tragic. Um, Seamus Grace as I said uh, got out of that building. Uh, This is a posed photograph that was taken the following year. That's Seamus Grace. This is actually outside the building. Uh, This is taken in 1917 after the Rising But That's Seamus Grace in the middle. Um, his witness testimony is on um, the Bureau of Military History, you can have a look at there, it's a very interesting story and it goes into detail um, about the Battle of Mount Street Bridge, but he um, had severe uh, trauma for many years after this, he was fired upon for uh, for a good few hours in that building and was talked about trembling from head to foot in fear uh, and that stayed with him all his life and he was uh, in and out of, of uh, mental institutions uh, for much of his later life and also carried a lot of survivor guilt, because Michael Malone, his buddy had been shot, but he had survived, and all of that trauma stayed with him uh, throughout his whole life so um, again the, the, the trauma was was on both sides really, um, but just to go back to our map here, so uh, we have um, a huge an awful scene of carnage here on the British side, obviously. Um, Then another wave comes up to try and take these uh, two school buildings here, so we have the uh, parochial hall and St Stephen's school across the way. Now uh, the British had received information that rebels were holed up here in St Stephen's school, which they had been until the Tuesday evening when they moved out. By Wednesday morning they're gone, Uh, they have moved elsewhere and uh, the British move up uh, trying to attack this school. Uh, and in the meantime they're getting hit from point-blank range from the rebels here in uh, Parochial Hall. So we have another wave of um, killings and woundings here uh, on this part and uh, these soldiers trying to take the school have also now come in range of uh, the rebels in Clan William House here who are firing down along the road towards them. And again there's very little in the way of cover, there's no way of, of attacking these buildings uh, except full-on basically, which causes awful carnage. Uh, They eventually take the school, of course. The rebels here run out of ammunition and and they escape through the back uh, streets here. Uh, The British eventually take this building uh, and then they realize that they've been fighting and dying over an empty building. Um, The final thing that they have to do then, and this is where John's battalion comes in. Again, we don't have any uh, specific mention of John in this, but it was the C Company of the 2nd 8th Battalion, which eventually overpowered uh, the rebels in Clan William House and set it on fire. So we can assume, um, without being 100% sure that John was involved, it's some part um, of the operation around this stage of it. Okay, But, for this, uh, for the British Army, this whole episode is an absolute disaster, it's pure carnage. Uh, the figures for the dead and wounded vary, uh, the most accurate i found I think is around 160 um, dead and wounded. Um, it's The figures are tiny obviously in comparison to what's happening on the front in France and Belgium, but uh, for what they considered the second city in in the British Empire at that stage, Dublin, for that kind of um, carnage to happen on on their own doorstep uh, was a disaster for them. Uh, And again it goes back to the fact that uh, first of all we had a lot of raw recruits who who, uh, weren't used to fighting, firing weapons, and secondly, uh, the way they were led, they were not uh, trained to fight this type of urban warfare. So you have uh, the streets basically swimming with blood. Uh, and we have loads of accounts of this, of, of local eyewitnesses uh, describing the scene. Um, so it must have been a huge shock for the, for the locals to come out and see their quiet uh, suburban neighborhood. And it would have been a, quite an affluent area, it still is obviously in Dublin, um, to see their neighborhood reduced um, to that scene. So um, that is the Battle of Mount Street Bridge. And uh, as we said, John, we think would have been involved in the latter stages of it um, some of the uh, sherwood foresters are still buried in dublin this is um two headstones from grange gorman cemetery uh, we have dixon here on the left and uh, sibley um these graves are luckily well looked after but many of the sherwood foresters are buried in graves that are kind of unkept and uh overgrown and stuff like that which is quite sad there has been a bit more attention brought to it in recent years so um people are starting to um look at them and um clean them up a small bit, but um, the Sherwood Foresters gained a pretty bad reputation in Dublin because they were also invited in the aftermath of the Rising to take part in the uh, execution of some of the rebels uh, as revenge for what happened on Mount Street Bridge. John's battalion was not involved in um, those executions or firing squads uh, because he and his buddies uh, had moved out of Dublin uh, in the days following the Rising. Uh, the country was under martial law, Um, the British did not know what was happening in the rest of the country they knew obviously there had been a rising in Dublin but they didn't know if other risings had been planned in Limerick or Cork or Galway or whatever so they put the country under martial law uh, and the army are tasked with going out into the countryside basically to pacify as they said the country to look out for rebels to arrest anybody that they thought might have been involved um, to pick up arms or ammunition or uh, to raid arms dumps and so on so that's uh, how John ends up moving out of Dublin with his battalion and over the next few weeks they cover this huge area here so um, basing themselves originally in that and then traveling um, in this huge red area that you see down towards Portlaoise uh, up around Nina um, up, up towards Toome almost as far as Castlebar so it's a huge area to cover and uh, that is eventually uh, how John ends up coming into Killaloo, okay, so there we are back home um, Tuesday morning 16th of May 1916 and we have the second 8th battalions, the Sherwood Foresters rolling into Killaloo on What we think was a pretty wet morning because the river had been high there had been a lot of rain and uh, they billet themselves here in the Lakeside Hotel, which you can see on this old map. Um, so, on the morning of the, um, the, uh, the 16th, John and two others, a guy called Sibley, Private Sibley, and uh, a private Tolly. Sorry, is uh, it Sibley? I forgot my notes now. Two seconds in. Simpkin, sorry, Simpkin. Uh, John and Simpkin and Tolly get into a boat which is moored here on, um, on the edge of the river. And as we said already, the river was quite high at the time. Um, they were warned not to meddle with the boats, uh, but they obviously disobeyed that order and they get into the boats. Uh, and again, you have to look back and see, that these are young boys, John at this stage is only 17. Um, you know, They're obviously looking for a bit of mischief or a bit of fun. Uh, and they get into the boat which doesn't have any oars. Okay? So they're using planks which they pull out from the bottom of the boat to um, maneuver themselves around. And they have been warned, another guy comes down and says, "You know, don't go past the landing ground because the river is so swollen that it will just take you away. But that's exactly what happens. So um, from um, the, the, um, the coroner's inquest and from the military inquest that was done after uh, this incident, we have a fair idea of what happens. Uh, Next, so I'm just going to read you uh, Simpkin's evidence, sorry, Tolly's evidence, he was one of the guys in the boat with John. So he says, uh, on Tuesday the 16th, after entering Billets at the Lakeside Hotel, I entered a boat on the landing stage there with Private Charlesworth and Private Simpkin. Private Simpkin had secured a board from the bottom of the boat and we were rowing backwards and forwards with it close to the shore. The boat got a little below the landing stage and further out and we could not get back to the shore. Private Charlesworth and I removed two more pieces of wood from the bottom of the boat and made further efforts to get the boat back to land. The boards were footboards used for rowing. Uh, Efforts were made continuously to get the boat to shore, but it was carried with increasing rapidity downstream towards the weir. The boat turned round and round and ultimately crashed into the weir, the gates of which were partially closed. The force of the current broke the boat which was drawn down under the gates. I clung to the iron step in the side stone pillar and was assisted in climbing up to the top of the weir by a signaller. Uh, Private Charlesworth was carried um, and under the gates and before I was rescued I saw him being carried downstream. He had a piece of board under his arm to which he was clinging. I saw him go 150 yards after which I lost sight of him. I never saw him again. Private Simpkin clung to the weir for perhaps three minutes after which he was carried away by the force of the current. Uh, So the weir that they're uh, referring to is this uh, structure here. Um, Eel weirs, uh, you mentioned that last night as well, Darlene. Or sluice gates, as they're called on the map there. So that's what they look like. and uh, You can see the Lakeside Hotel there in the background. So these would have been um, uh, concrete pillars, concrete structures. Uh, They were able to be opened to control the flow of the water um, in the river. And that's what they smashed into on their way down. So Simpkin, he is lucky. He managed to cling on to it uh, and he's rescued eventually by a signaler. Um, uh, Tolly goes downstream, um, further downstream as does John Charlesworth. Uh, from the bank of the river then we have um, a Sergeant Martin who sees what's happening. He jumps in to try and rescue the two guys that are in the water. Uh, but because the river is so powerful there's nothing really he can do to help them. So we now have three of them in the river, uh, in the water and they're heading towards the the bridge here in Killaloo and it's at that stage then that the local fishermen come in. Okay now the local fishermen don't get a huge amount of praise uh, or mention in the official military reports but they are mentioned in the coroner's report Um, and I'll show you their names in a second but um, so we've three men in the water and um, Two of them are then rescued by the local fishermen and brought into the boats. They're brought ashore, they're unconscious but they are quickly revived and they obviously live to tell the tale. Uh, but John Charlesworth is nowhere to be seen, his body is gone and uh, there's no sign of him at all. Uh, the fishermen who um, rescued them, and uh, I mentioned this before I think when we were doing the talk to see if there was any locals around that were still uh, related to all these people, they were nominated or Recommended for a Carnegie Award, Carnegie Fund Award, Carnegie Hero Award. Uh, I actually wrote to the Carnegie Hero people, but they have never replied to me, uh, to see if these guys were, were they have a role of honour there going way back, uh, hundred or so years of all these people who were recommended for the um, the Carnegie Hero Fund. So the, the coroner recommended that they be put on this role of honour, but uh, as I said, I don't have any information as to whether they're on it or not. Um, but... Um, Those names were. No, I don't have them with me, sorry. I don't. Just uh, out of interest to see if anybody uh, would recognize any of the names or uh, know of anybody who might be related to them. Um, so we've got uh, Michael Barry, Peter Noonan, Thomas Maloney, William Malone, Michael Keishan, and William Lucas. So um, they were in two boats and they managed to rescue uh, the two who were in the water. But John, as I said, uh, disappears and uh, is gone. That is just a modern satellite view of the, um, of the town there. You can actually see that sluice gates or weir, there's a concrete section of it, which is still visible if you're walking down along the, um, the canal there. Uh, you can see it across the water front in front of that lovely new house that was built there. Um, so that's part of the Seuss Gates, and of course they were removed when the Shannon scheme was built um, back in 1928, 29 So um, John's body uh, has disappeared, and the news obviously quickly reaches the, new, the newspapers in Mansfield. This is from uh, one of the uh, Mansfield newspapers. Uh, brief details were published in last Friday's Reporter of the tragic death which ever overcame Private uh, Charlesworth of C Company 2A Sherwood Foresters and whose mother resides at 5 Broomhill Road, a Lane Mansfield, the poor lad it appears was in a boat on the River Shannon at Killaloo in the company of private Simpkins and so on, so at this stage the body still has not been found they know that he's missing and he's dead, presumed dead, uh, but there is no sign of the body it's only uh, a week later or so, uh, a man by the name of William Ives uh, stated that while fishing the previous day so this is from the coroner's report, uh, the previous day in the water near Moyes uh, so Moyes is down at the back of Clarisfield Park there where the river meets the park uh, Thomas Warren, Fort Henry, drew his attention to a dark object in the water. He knew that the soldier had been drowned in the river on the 16th. Uh, and when he went to the object, he found that it was the body of a soldier. He secured the body in the water near the bank and informed uh, Constable Cassan of his discovery. He found the body between 12 and 1 o'clock. Constable Cassan stated that on previous day, the la- last witness reported to him that he had discovered the body of a soldier in the water. The witness visited the place indicated in the river by Ives and saw the body of a soldier. He searched it and around the neck he found a disc which is usually worn by the military It bore the name of J. Charlesworth and the letters C of E, uh, 8, N and D, so that's the Knots and Derby. Um, and in the pockets he found an army paybook on which he, uh, the deceased had written his will, two rosary beads, a belt, some postcards, letters, photographs and uh, three shillings, one and a half pence. Yeah. Um, so that's poor John. Uh, his body is found uh, <coughs> and uh, his worldly possessions on him. There was um, a bit of confusion about the rosary beads, um, you know, there was a, a bit of back and forth as to whether he was actually Catholic or Church of England um, and which way he should be buried. It was eventually uh, cleared up, of course, uh, that he was um, a Church of England member and uh, was buried accordingly, but that caused a bit of confusion at the time. Um, so the, I suppose the, the sad part of it is that his, his friends, his um, his unit has has already left the area by this time, so there's nobody really around to um, to see him off, I suppose, and his funeral. Um, they get in touch with with the commanding officer um, Oates, and he advises the um, or asks the RIC, the Royal Irish Constabulary, to assist with the burial, uh, and he says that we will bear the cost of any funeral or whatever. So that's exactly what happens, and uh, he's buried outside, as we know, and we'll see later on. But Couple of little interesting things that I discovered only recently, uh, and it was only while reading Ger Brown's um, um, records of of, uh, Killaloo people in the First World War. William Ives' son has at this stage also uh, signed up and is fighting uh, and dies the following year in January or in um, summer of 1917. He dies somewhere in Egypt um, and is buried over in the graveyard in Temple Kelly. So that's something that I only figured out. Um, so that must have been brought at home, I suppose, for William Ives, seeing uh, the body of a young soldier um, in Killaloo when his own son was already off at war. So um, another report from... OK, that's not going to... need to get that out of the way, but uh, this is a report from Mansfield then to, to say that um, John's body has been found and buried and that there was a fine uh, turnout at the funeral so there would have been um, locals would have come obviously, uh, there would also have been a, a contingent from the RIC there and even though his buddies weren't there from his unit, um, they had already moved on as we said there would have been a good showing at the funeral um, according to the newspapers and there would have been quite a lot of sympathy I suppose still for British soldiers as we said already locals all had their own sons there, there was a lot of people in Killaloo fighting in the war at the time so there would have been a lot of soul, uh, sympathy for British soldiers uh, still at that time in 1916 Later on, in 1920-21, that sympathy would have pretty much evaporated. By, uh, but at this stage, um, there would have been a good crowd. And, um, you know, we assume from the newspapers that he got a decent send-off. So uh, he is remembered, obviously, outside here, but also on a few. Um, the Commonwealth War Grace Commission have him uh, on their role of honour and he's also remembered here on the Nottinghamshire County Council Roll of honour but they give his age here as 20 so I also wrote to them and said look I have evidence to show that he's not 20 he's only 17 years and 4 months old so he's still not even able to sign up he's not uh, old enough to sign up uh, and uh, the poor lad is dead uh, and buried Um, so I wrote to these guys as well and they have also refused to get back to me so everybody's ignoring me Uh, But hopefully eventually we will get um, uh, some change in that. So um, that is the story of John. And uh, I think it's worth looking at the photograph again, because you can see that he is only a child um, from that photograph. And the last little thing that I want to mention, and um, Deborah and Arlene are uh, well aware of this and sick of hearing about it, I suppose. But this photograph, when I first went down to research um, the grave and John's story, this photograph didn't exist. Uh, I wrote the article not knowing because I remember when I emailed you with the story first You said, you know, do you have any photographs of him or anything would be great for for the article I said no, I don't have any photographs of him and lo and behold about a year later I came down to visit the grave and this beautiful little pen picture which you'll see out there now um, Was attached to the gravestone. So we still don't know who put it there. We assumed that some relatives uh, came over and and um, visited the grave and left this little picture but uh, we have I've been on message boards on World War One forums and everything to see if anybody has any connection uh, with that photograph and still this must be four years ago now I'd say maybe more Uh, we haven't got any indication as to who put it there so we would love to obviously to get in touch with those people if possible uh, and maybe someday we will Uh, so that's the story of poor John Um, as I said a short and sad life and um the uh, the tragedy of it is obviously his age. I mean, he's only he's only a young boy, and uh, he's been lying out there now for over a hundred years. So that's it. Thank you very much for your attention. And if you have any questions, I'll do my best to answer them. Why would you have people got in touch with us about the child's new Yeah, he is. He's been on a few times now, and I gave him uh, I gave him all the information I had, but like he needs to go back in his own family so I have no idea who his parents or grandparents uh, you know he would need to go back and trace his side of the family first to see if there is a connection with John yeah. um, but I think
0: he's just going by the surname isn't
1: he? Yeah, yeah, um, but he's been onto us, he got onto us again recently, again, recently yeah. well, so well, I don't yeah. have any extra information for him but Was there a
0: poppy or something put
1: on was There it was a poppy there as well, yeah
0: yeah. And how, well, you, you've never fully figured out was his father, Charlesworth, was he actually his, his real father? Uh,
1: I suspect Either. not. Okay. Um, because there is, um, on the birth certificate, we can get up here again, maybe. Sorry. There uh, uh, was a the name under it. Yes. I didn't want to create any scandal by mentioning it, so no, I said no, I'd just, I'd just <laughs> I leave just it. But I think <laughs> the passage of time is, is uh, it's far enough past now that maybe we can it's over the broach the subject, yeah. So, um, there is a surname underneath the, uh, the birth cert <laughs> under his own name, John, it's Gwiler, I'm not sure exact pronunciation, G-U-I-L-E-R. So I searched the census, census records and there was a Gwiler family living very close to his mother. So there may have been a f- something going on there. Um, the, uh, the family owned a farm and may have been involved with that cotton, she worked as a cotton worker. Um, so there possibly something there, I don't know. Um, maybe it's unfair to speculate, but you know, it's a, there's no other reason why the name would be on the yeah. birth cert. maybe unless uh, the employer Kind of put their name on it for some reason I don't know but um, yeah so that that's uh, a possibility as well that that uh, he wasn't his real dad okay. um, the the military the yeah the, uh, there's direct um, the if you go into the Commonwealth War Graves Commission you can see the the original cards of the headstones and stuff like that yeah yeah. Yes. Johnson that lived down at the pierhead. Hmm. Johnson's house got a long in the house, he was awarded the Carnegie uh, okay. for saving lives from the pierhead. Right. So, it, it was in the paper, so it must be... It must be. Yeah, so the, the, uh, the coroner mentions it um, so that the military don't really mention the fishermen at all. And uh, in fact, the guy Oates, the commanding officer that I took a lot of the story from, he uh, makes a kind of a snide comment uh, about the locals. When he talks about the t- um, Sergeant Martin jumping into the water he says um, Sergeant Martin heroically jumps into the water uh, an action that was not um, I can't remember the exact words now an action that the locals did not follow or something like that you know a really kind of uh, snide kind of remark so um, and he gives them very little praise um, in, the, in his own account and in the military tribunal they're, they're barely mentioned Yeah. But if it, if it wasn't for those fishermen, I mean, it would have been two more tragedies, if not three. No, you have to email them, and see, it's a, it's a, it, there's no digital version of it. It's a big book basically, and they have to scroll through it looking for the entries. So they may get back to me at some stage. I gave them all the details and the names and everything, and asked them to have a look. But um, nothing yet. But hopefully. Uh, Yes, he's in Sean's book, yeah, Um, that's him, yeah, and uh, as I said, I didn't realise his own son is is also um, buried, yeah, and was at war at the time.